This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Since 2004, Peace Talks Radio has been tracking the conversation about the declining civility in our political discourse. National polling over this time has consistently reported that two-thirds of those polled feel that there's a major problem with civility in our nation, while 75% agree that it's certainly worse than it was just a few years ago, and a whopping nearly 90% feel that declining civility results in more bullying, more harassment, more violent behavior, and hate crimes, 80% believing that it leads to less community engagement. As social media has become more widely used, more people, nearly two-thirds in recent polling, believe that social media has had a negative impact on maintaining civility. In 2019, among those who thought civility was declining, social media and the internet was ranked in one poll as the number one factor contributing to the decline, followed pretty closely by the White House and politicians in general. The news media less so, but still number four on that list. We've been talking to all kinds of folks about this over the years, looking for perspective and some solution ideas. And this time on the program, we present another panel of guests with their takes on it, with Suzanne Kreider hosting the conversations. Later, we'll hear from Fordham University Communications and Media Studies professor Jesse Baldwin-Filippi, who isn't sure that we can blame the social media tech platform for our own incivility. Also, we hear from Tasha Philpott, who's an associate professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. But we begin with a politician, Brent Hill, who became a member of the Idaho State Senate in 2000 and its president pro tem in 2010. He's also the director of a program called Next Generation at the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Brent Hill spoke with Suzanne Kreider. Brent, I've seen civility defined in two different ways, as politeness, and adds responsiveness. Which is it? Wow, politeness or responsiveness. Uh, You know, when you talk about politeness, I think civility is somewhat deeper uh, than that. But at the same time, it's it's hard to be responsive if you're rude to someone. So I I think they go together uh, hand in hand. Uh, It would be hard to to define uh, civility without using both of those terms, I think, you know, and then you throw in respect and a few other terms as well. But uh, but I I don't think you can have one uh, without the other and still be uh, civil with someone. When there's a lack of civility in political discourse, some people say, well, that's because of three different groups. I'm going to give you the three groups. Okay. (laughs) I want you to rank order the impact each group has on civility in political discourse. Politicians like yourself, the media, and citizens. So which of those three groups has the biggest impact and the least impact? I think uh, the politicians themselves, the the lawmakers, the the policymakers, uh, have to uh, develop a, a discourse that is civil. Uh, the citizens come in there too. Uh, they're the ones who elect uh, those lawmakers. They need to let those lawmakers know what their expectations are. If they keep electing people that are bullies, that they get their way through threatening and other ways, uh, I guess we all, all deserve what we, uh, what we elect there. But uh, uh, the people themselves, the type of discourse they have with their lawmakers, I always tell somebody, you know, if you, if you uh, don't like what I'm doing, uh, please let me know. 
But also, it would be nice if, if you have another way that it should be done, if you have other ideas. And being able to communicate those in a civil way is very important so that those lawmakers can take those ideas and uh, help implement them in the policies that are being made. And then the media, you, you know, you can't let them off uh, completely. Uh, contention is more uh, interesting to report on than, uh, than cooperation or civility. And, uh, and so they, they certainly play a role in it. I always like it when I see a, a, a nice piece, uh, you know, uh, the old Paul Harvey type thing where you, you look at the good side of things. Uh, NPR does a pretty good job with that. Uh, uh, ABC does America Strong at the end of their newscast. Usually just at least something uplifting uh, that uh, we can report on something that's good that is happening, uh, not just all the contention that's going on in politics. Let's talk about peaceful solutions to civility because you're the program director at Next Generation. What is Next Generation? Well, Next Generation is a, a part of the National Institute for Civil Discourse. And uh, the Next Generation program itself, we're working with legislatures. Some of the problems we have are at the national level, but we need to remember that about half of those people serving in Congress once served in their state legislature. And so if we can uh, start developing those good habits of civility uh, within the legislatures, uh, particularly with leadership and, and uh, who set the tone uh, a lot of times for uh, the atmosphere that is found in each legislative body, then that's going to carry over. Uh, many of them will uh, later serve at a federal level. And so uh, to be able to work at the, at the local state level and talk about you know, building relationships, building friendships, and how important that is in order to uh, promote civility. It's pretty tough to be mean to a friend. Uh, it's a little easier to be mean to a stranger. And so uh, helping people develop relationships, even within the political realm, I think is very important. And that's something we're trying to do at Next Generation. Through workshops that we have, we have uh, workshops with uh, different legislative bodies, sometimes just leadership, sometimes just one party. Uh, generally, we try to strive to do it with uh, the whole legislature and talk about the personal experience that people go through and let people realize we're, we're all human beings. We're, we're brothers and sisters in this together. And quite frankly, we all have the same goals, and that's to uh, benefit the citizens that we've uh, been asked to serve. With Next Generation, what are some of the approaches that you teach people? First of all, we need to determine what are the advantages of civility? Again, some people have learned to deal with uh, their political power by intimidation, by making threats, by bullying. But there really are advantages to civility in getting the people's work done and building that trust so that you can work together and get more ideas and be respectful of those ideas and so forth. We take the legislators through their personal journey and find out what makes them tick. What were the life-changing experiences in your life? And, uh, and as you start sharing those things and realize uh, these other colleagues that you're working with, their parents and grandparents, uh, their brothers and sisters, they, they have lives of their own. And again, if we can get to know one another better and understand one another better, then again, it's a lot more difficult uh, not to treat someone else with, with some civility and respect. 
Then we try to identify the problem areas within that legislative body. And that comes from the group themselves. Where are our weaknesses? Is it one body more than another? Is it with our relationship between parties or between uh, legislative bodies or with the executive branch? Let's try to identify those problem areas and then come up with an action plan so that we can uh, start working on those things that might be hindering us uh, from having the kind of civility we want. You said most of us and have a yearning that makes me think about like that one bad apple. Have you seen that? Like one bad apple can really infect other people. Uh, yes, um, but I got but I got to I got to counter that with the other side, and that is one good person can make a big difference too in the in the whole environment there. But yes, we 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 still have uh, I, I guess I'd call him a bully uh, in the Idaho legislature. And, uh, and he has learned to be successful at getting his way uh, a lot of times. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, not many people would, uh, would march into battle with him uh, because there's not that trust. There's not that likability. And so even though uh, he may be successful in get, getting his way uh, some of the time, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the times after he gets his way, the program or whatever issue he was uh, trying to uh, to push there doesn't uh, doesn't become successful because he doesn't have the buy-in. He doesn't have he doesn't have the, the rest of us there uh, wanting him to be successful and wanting his programs to be successful. Brett, because you're a politician in the Idaho State Legislature, the Senate, I want to ask you for to tell us two stories and not name names, but tell us of. Pal, there's been a peaceful solution to some kind of civil discourse uh, where the opponents were on opposite sides. And then tell us a story that's kind of unpleasant, where there was a lack of peacefulness, a lack of civility in the legislature. I'll, I'll, I'll take the one where uh, we were not as successful as I wish we could have been, uh, was back uh, with the Affordable Care Act when uh, we were looking at setting up a state-based health insurance exchange. Uh, this split not only the legislature as a whole, but it split uh, the caucus, particularly the Republican caucus, uh, as those who uh, wanted to try to solve problems at the state level and others who uh, didn't want to deal with the problem at all. That took us the whole session, the whole legislative session, three months, and there were some hard feelings uh, there. It took us a while to resolve those problems. In fact, it took us the interim to do that. Uh, this, and, and so that leads in, I guess, to the success part. There were sore feelings, particularly between the House and the Senate when the legislative session ended. And the Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Bedke and I got together and we visited and we said, this is not the way we want to do things in Idaho. These are not the relationships we want to have between the House and the Senate. and we." committed to each other at that time, that we would uh, do whatever we needed to do in order to restore the good relationship that we have historically had between the House and the Senate uh, in Idaho. We worked uh, all, all summer long. We had several meetings with uh, House leadership and Senate leadership, uh, just the majority uh, with the minority, and we had to start with leadership. And then we each went around uh, the state and visited with our members, 
Uh, we had uh, town hall meetings with them, but uh, I did not limit my visits to only Senate members, and the speaker didn't only limit his visits to House members. Uh, we talked to our legislators uh, wherever they were in whatever part of the state, again, uh, showing some interest in, in their lives. Uh, we visited them at their homes. Uh, we visited them with them at their businesses, got to know, in many cases, their families and their children. And uh, you know what? When we went back that uh, following January, uh, it only took us about uh, four or five days, we felt like, uh, until things were back to, to, to the good part of normal. It's a good example because it's making me think of several things. Like one is majority-minority. There's always a group that has more people, and that's a difficulty, but there's also the issue of time, because I think in a human mind we want to have it fast. But you, you guys, you, but you all didn't give up. You just kept at it. So your session ends in March. You worked all summer. You traveled. So it seems like time wasn't an issue. What do you have to say about either time or this whole issue of majority minority? Uh, first of all, I just might make the point, uh, you know, I think we do a pretty good job in the United States of calling it the majority and minority party. You know, you get in some of these other countries, they call it the ruling party and the opposition party. And uh, I think our system was set up originally by our founders as uh, as a system that would promote civility and uh, respect uh, between uh, parties and be- between individuals. Uh, but uh, Suzanne, would you ask your question once more for me? I'm sorry. Sure. No, that's a really good point. It's a good example, and it makes me think of two things. The time that you all put in, because humans like things fast now. Like, oh, some people would say, well, it didn't work. I'm giving up. But you didn't do that. Your session ends in March. You all traveled during the summer. You kept at it. You worked all the way through that time period. The other thing you mentioned was majority-minority, and that's an important tool, I think, in terms of language. Do you have anything to say about either time or majority-minority in terms of peaceful solutions? Well, I think we all know that it takes time uh, to build relationships. It takes time uh, to build friendships, and that's uh, not just true in politics. That's true in, in our everyday lives. Uh, I think some of the problems we have with civility has come from uh, our impatience and our unwillingness to to put the time in for those things. Uh, you know, it, it used to be that uh, when you wanted to correspond with someone, you you actually uh, uh, met with them or you uh, called them on the telephone or maybe even wrote a letter. But now it's a text. It's a it's an email that you often don't even proof and you might be angry and you just push send and, and it's gone and it's out there. And, and I think if we all slowed down just a little bit and uh, maybe uh, put those uh, little rectangle boxes in our hands down and actually looked each other in the eyes once in a while, uh, that uh, we might all be able to improve those relationships and improve the uh, the civility and the respect uh, we show for one another. And so that's that's what we had to do. Brett, there's lots of suggested solutions on what people should do around civility. So I'm going to give you a list. Okay. And then after the list, you tell me if any of those would help 
or if there's something else that would help. Okay. So the list is campaign finance reform, free campaign ads, media literacy, redistricting, and then relationships. You've mentioned this, though, before, that relationships among people who have opposing views. Any of those help or not? Oh, certainly. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, all of them would help to some degree. Uh, redistricting is a, uh, uh, that's a contributor uh, to some of the uh, incivility that we have in politics. You know, our, our, our red districts are getting redder and the blue ones are getting bluer as, uh, as redistricting has gone over the last uh, couple of decades, particularly. The real races now in many places are, are in the primary race. And, um, and, and therefore, you know, whether whichever, whichever party you're in, uh, you sometimes get candidates that are, that are maybe more extreme than, uh, than mainstream. And, uh, and, and so when they get in the legislature, uh, sometimes they're, they're further apart to start with, and it takes uh, longer or more effort to, uh, to bring them together. Um, I think that, um, a couple other things that you didn't mention. Um, we talked about the public's importance. You know, sometimes the public becomes apathetic. And as they do that, then they leave politics up uh, to those who are passionate about it. And, uh, and, and again, uh, the extremists are always passionate. They're not the only ones that are passionate. But, uh, but you get people on the extremes that are sometimes making the decisions. And so if the public would um, become more involved. And I know that takes time. It takes effort. It takes getting out and voting, but not only that, knowing who the candidates are and what the issues are, but I think uh, that would help. But let me bring it down to where it really is. And, and I think it starts with people um, in the home. What are we teaching in the home uh, when it comes to politeness and respect and civility um, in our churches, uh, in our schools? Uh, you know, the schools are not just uh, places to... Uh, you know, learn math, uh, but to learn manners as well. And um, I, I think that if, if we could start in those places, then obviously it's, it's going to grow out from there. Now, there are those who don't have some of those opportunities, and we end up working with them uh, some, in some other location or another time in their lives. Um, there are also uh, bipartisan organizations out there that I think help bring parties together and bring legislature, legislators together and to help build those relationships and that respect that they should have for one another. National Conference of State Legislatures, uh, the Council of uh, State Governments, uh, State Legislative Leaders Foundation, uh, Senate Presidents Forum, all of those uh, go in with us uh, at the National Institute for Civil Discourse to help promote better state government. And part of that promotion is also to promote civility and respect as we uh, work together. People in general have to have their own views. We need to listen to all of views. And what you're saying is a lot of times the people in the middle are not involved. Is that what you're saying with the, when they have apathy? Well, that's certainly not always the case, but uh, uh, sometimes people are in the middle because they just don't have strong feelings about politics at all. 
Now, that's certainly not uh, the majority of those people that uh, consider themselves independent, but enough to, to provide a feeling of apathy sometimes. Uh, we have a pathetic, uh, pathetically low number of uh, people that vote uh, in the United States and, and in our states and, and even in our local elections sometimes. I know that some people are disenchanted with politics. Uh, they're discouraged about it. But uh, it's like other things in our lives. Uh, if we get discouraged about something, I mean, say we're having a problem within our own family. You know, some people uh, just pack up and move out of their family. But that's not the way most of us handle it. We, uh, we work things out together. We sit down. We communicate. We get involved. And, you know, I get some sometimes some pretty uh, mean correspondence uh, from constituents out there. But I would rather have mean correspondence than, than someone who just didn't care or didn't take the time to, to communicate with me. Because if it, if it seems mean to me, it's an opportunity uh, to communicate and to uh, clear up under misunderstandings and to, uh, and to learn more from one another. That's Brent Hill, longtime member of the Idaho State Senate and director of the Next Generation program at the National Institute for Civil Discourse. You can hear more from him at our website on the July 20th episode page, the complete interview with him, on that page at peacetalksradio.com. Suzanne talks more about restoring civility to political discourse with government professor Tasha Philpot when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the broadcast and podcast series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we're revisiting the topic of incivility in our political discourse and what to do about it. Next, Suzanne Kreider talks with Tasha Philpot, an associate professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. Her PhD in political science is from the University of Michigan. Suzanne asked Dr. Philpot for her definition of civility to begin with. I think of civility as just a basic common respect and politeness that people can exhibit towards each other. And is this like a given in humans? Because it seems like we're not really that polite. And is this something that'll always be? I think it's definitely learned behavior. Basic manners are something that my, my parents instilled in me. But I've noticed, particularly in, in this current climate, that Things like manners and respect. So I definitely don't think of it as a given, have become partisan. I think that we've entangled things like civility and respect with political correctness, which has a negative connotation. Well, I'm kind of an armchair psychologist, and I've noticed that people seem to 
have what I'll say lost this humanness, this humanity of talking to each other and listening to different viewpoints, letting people have different viewpoints. What do you think the solution is of this? It's like a huge social change that I'm curious how it's impacted politics. You know, quite honestly, I, I just don't know. I was reading the other day about the notion of cognitive dissonance and we're just not hardwired to relent on our, on our opinions. I mean, you can see that when we, when people hear information that's contrary to um, their beliefs, they find ways to justify their beliefs and they dig their heels in even deeper. So, you know, there's no amount of facts or evidence that I could present to someone that, you know, has deeply ingrained beliefs about something else. Tasha Philpott, you've authored several books, for example, Conservative but Now Republican, The Paradox of Party Identification in Ideology Among African Americans. You've also co-edited a book called African American Political Psychology, Identity, Opinion, and Action in the Post-Civil Rights Era. Now, I'm not asking you to like encapsulate everything you've learned from your research. I'm just curious if there's anything from your findings about civility. Well, most of my research deals with race relations um, in the United States. So there's certainly a lot to be said about the racial hostility that has occurred from the beginning of the union up until present. I think one of the interesting things about this current political climate is just how rampant racial hostility is. And so one of the things that I've learned certainly is that a lot of political decisions, particularly as it relates to supporting one political party or another, has to do with your level of tolerance for this racial incivility. What about this whole collaboration thing? Like, if someone says, well, I don't talk to anyone who's an uncivil racist, what would you say about that? That's a little difficult. I mean, I I think about my friends who do not share the same ideology as I do. And, you know, we may disagree on things like how much we should spend on the military or how much we should spend on social services. But it's it's very different when it comes to race because you're not talking about just the proper policies that go with that issue. You're talking about who gets to be a citizen and who gets rights under, you know, in the U.S. context under the Constitution. So if you're racist, we're not disagreeing on a hypothetical issue. We're disagreeing on whether or not a whole group of people are worthy of being thought of as human, let alone citizens. Yes, it's about their rights. And do you have any ideas about other solutions for how citizens can view each other and be more civil? I'm definitely a big fan of utilizing government. I don't think that hearts and minds can be changed on their own. History has proven that that's just not where we are as a nation. Um, It's taken government intervention to right some of these wrongs. And then hopefully as time evolves and we become more connected as a world through things like social media that we'll learn about each other and a lot of those fears and apprehensions that we have towards others will be relieved a little bit. What if nobody runs who we like, who's civil? Because it seems like it's like this whole system of who gets to run, who has the money, you know, who wants to run, who wants to put up with 
people sending really uncivil messages or phone calls. Who wants to go through that? I absolutely hear you on this issue. I mean, one of the issues is with the advent of things like camera phones and internet searches that you really have no privacy. And so you have to find people who either have squeaky clean backgrounds or large enough egos where they're not bothered by their personal lives being uncovered to run for office. There are lots of organizations now that are popping up that are grooming the next generation to run for public office. So you get a a younger, um, more diverse cadre of people who are willing to invest in running for office. And with that, you get people who are willing to invest monetarily. Although, you know, there are lots of examples where people didn't have to raise a whole lot of money to run for office, particularly in lower level races like uh, school boards and city councils, where you just need an interested party who's dedicated to the issue to run. Let me give you an example of something a politician said. I want to get your response. In early 2020, there uh, it was an exchange about gun policy between a Democratic presidential candidate, Joe Biden, and a factory worker. And in this you know, it's a video that's online now. In this video, Joe Biden calls a Detroit factory worker full of S. It's a four-letter word. Mm-hmm. Well, there were, you know, lots of different reactions. Some people loved it. Some people disliked it. What do you think about this? Was it really wrong that he did this? Or are we applying some kind of, like, purity test? Like, oh, politicians have to be more pure Or do we just let them be people? Personally, I I clutched my pearls when I when I read that um, when it when it happened, Um, because I think that as a seasoned politician, Joe Biden should know better. Certainly, you know, we all slip. We all have our bad days. Uh, But I, I do hold our our nation's leaders to a higher standard especially those who are running for the highest office of the land. And some people say, well, I, you know, I think personally it would be really hard to have someone follow me with the video camera all day long because sometimes I'm sleepy or sometimes I'm mean. The other day, yesterday, I yelled at someone on the phone. Well, I didn't yell at her, but I gave her a hard time. <laughs> you know, so I just wonder when you say we, hope, we should hold people who run for office to a higher standard, what do you mean by that? I mean, like you said, everybody everybody has a bad day. Everybody gets caught slipping every once in a while. Um, but you would expect somebody to, you know, if they know better, to do better. I have a 10-year-old, and I don't expect her to behave like an adult because she's only 10. So some of her behaviors um, need to be corrected you know, when she throws a tantrum or when she cries that that she doesn't get her way. I don't hold her to the same standard that I would say one of my students who's, you know, 18 to 21, who should have grown out of the tantrum throwing stage. And I would expect better behavior from someone who's been in politics for 50 years and has the experience interacting with people of of all um, walks of life. Okay, now I'm walking down, I'm in the grocery store. I'm walking down the cookie aisle. There's loads of choices. 
50 years ago, when I was a kid, there were like three choices, but now there's a whole aisle of cookies, lots of choices, lots of cereals, bread, everything, yogurt, <laughs> takes me forever to decide. But when you get on social media, there's only three choices. You can be a liberal, you can be a conservative, or you can be an independent, which is usually ignored on social media campaigns. What's going on? It seems like we're really um, taking these complex issues and trying to reduce them to a few choices. In your opinion, how do we expand the possibilities and really start collaborating? Part of that is by design and part of that is by our willingness to absorb more information. It's just really, really easy to vote you know, come election time when your choices are, you know, Democrat or Republican or like in Texas, Libertarian. There's some, there's meaning that's conveyed by those labels. And so we don't really have to know a whole lot about candidates to know where they are probably going to stand on the issues if they have those labels. But also by design, our system is created by, um, a strong two-party system, and they write the rules to make sure that it stays that way. So for instance, you know, if you're running for president, you have to be able to get on the ballot in all 50 states. It's not an automatic, you know, I'm running for office, I'm getting on the ballot. Well, in order to do that, you have to have resources, money resources, people resources, uh, which typically third-party candidates don't always have. The word disrespectful means different things to different people. What does it mean to you? Being respectful at a minimum is allowing people to be who they are without judgment and without persecution, allowing people to articulate their truth without being penalized with the hopes that if you do that, then they'll reciprocate. So it's not saying that you can say whatever you want without any consequence, but it's allowing people the space for them to do so, so that they will give you the same type of treatment. Right. I get whacked from my extremely liberal friends who think I'm a little too lackadaisical because you said, well, it's allowing people to be who they are. And so sometimes I allow politicians to be who they are, and I get whacked for that. What's your response? We have choices. So I can allow someone to be who they are, but I also can choose to remove myself from that person's presence. Uh -huh. I can also, you know, economically, if someone is head of a company and they are articulating a point of view that I don't agree with, I can choose to spend my money elsewhere. Um, I can vote for a different candidate. So being respectful of someone else or letting them at least express who they are doesn't necessarily mean that I have to choose to stay in the presence of that person. I have some autonomy and some agency to, to pick a different association. This whole issue of politeness, I read one time, well, a person could be really polite, but then totally slam. And I'm thinking of a legislator could be really polite mm -hmm. and say, oh, yes, I'm listening to you. But then they act on the legislation as if they're not listening. 
They do the opposite. Being polite doesn't necessarily mean that you're conforming to the other person. It just means that you're responding to the disagreement in a respectful way. So it's it's perfectly within their their rights to stick to their guns and to, in terms of a legislator, vote their preferences. But in conveying those differences or listening to people who are different, you can still be polite. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're that you're being two-faced or duplicitous. Tasha Philpot, an associate professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear more from her at our website on the July 2020 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. Hear the complete interview with her by clicking on her photo there at peacetalksradio.com. Suzanne talks with a communications and media studies scholar next about social media and more as it relates to incivility in our political discourse when Peace Talks Radio continues after a break. I'm Paul Ingalls on Peace Talks Radio, where this forum on political civility will conclude with Jesse Baldwin Filippi, an associate professor at Fordham University in the Communication and Media Studies Department. Her research centers around political campaigns, political participation, citizenship, and digital democracy. Here again for the interview is Suzanne Kreider. Jesse, social media is sometimes cited as one of the main causes of this increase in incivility. But at the same time, we're seeing more accounts and more people using social media. So how do you explain this hate-love dichotomy? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to kind of contextualize and even historicize some of the incivility that we see across a variety of media platforms. Of course, we now live in social media kind of all of the time, right? But incivility happens at a variety of places across the internet. And research has shown that it has tended to be worse in some of those places than others. But another place that incivility has kind of long been fostered is actually like via television news as well. So it's not limited to social media, but social media is certainly where we are increasingly living our lives. And it makes sense that as more and more people spend more and more time there, that we will want to do so also, right? Even if there is incivility there, just like there is in many other parts of our life. When you say historicized, do you mean television or even before that? Um, I, I was kind of particularly speaking te to television um, as kind of a media scholar. Um, that's a little bit more in my wheelhouse. Um, I think that different forms of media make incivility more apparent to us. Um, 
in addition to the fact that like we do actually tend to kind of moderate our incivility when we are in in-person um, interactions. Um, so those mediated ones do tend to become more incivil, um, but it also just makes it more aware, right? We can see all of these incivil interactions in a place like say Twitter without actually being part of them too. So they, they, they're more felt in some ways. Here's the big question, because your research has looked at how digital tech was impacting citizenship and political participation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, a lot of my work has focused particularly on how political campaigns make use of social media to try and talk to us, the potentially voting public. Um, and so really kind of focusing on what big campaigns or other political organizations want us to do with these digital tools um, and kind of drawing uh, conclusions from there about kind of what that means for citizenship, right? Do they want us to talk back to them? Um, they probably want us to do so civilly, um, but if they are encouraging us to talk back all of the time, um, it kind of stands to reason that, that those conversations will not always or only be um, kind of uh, either civil or exactly go as exactly as they planned. What do they want us to do? Talk <laughs> to them or talk to other people or what? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, a, a, kind of both, I will say. Um, it, early on in my research, like I kind of started in this world in 2010, um, kind of after the first Obama campaign, and I was curious about how other campaigns were like learning from this kind of, this revolutionary moment, right? Um, and early on, a lot of campaigns developed kind of tactics to try and mobilize their own supporters to go into the online platforms where they already lived and had their social lives, right? Um, and to try and advocate for their candidates. And so we see that still, right? We see people posting about who they like, who they don't like. Um, for quite a while now, campaigns have actually tried to give their kind of most vocal supporters um, talking points to do that. They have gone anywhere from kind of sending them emails to do so to inviting them to like be part of what have kind of had different names from team whoever to like a truth team um, to, to help fight disinformation or to help fight rumors or to just say, tell people why you support their policies. Um, so that's been quite common for a while. And kind of now that's understood as like there are actually roles within campaigns where people get hired to do this work of um, kind of social media organizing. Jesse, you've written a book titled Using Technology, Building Democracy, Digital Campaigning and the Construction of Citizenship. You mentioned some tactics like posting, talking points, fighting rumors. Are there other tactics and are they asking people to be civil? So I will say like generally when campaigns give instructions about kind of what to do, what to talk about, they often encourage people to be civil because there's like there's decent research that also shows that that is the way to help make people believe in you or agree with you. Right. And it makes them look bad. Also, we've kind of seen some infamous examples of supporters of candidates spouting off in incivil ways and getting the candidates and the, uh, themselves in trouble, right? So they don't want that to kind of blow back on them. Oftentimes, like that is kind of a, an underlying direction, right? Or underlying instructions. But 
it doesn't come up repeatedly or routinely unless something's going awry, right? Um, unless there are kind of these notable examples of, of, of incivil and probably extremely incivil um, talk happening, then they kind of will step in and amplify that message. Um, and other than that, really, it's about kind of controlling the message, right? It's about Yes, hearing from you or me, the people, but it's really about making sure that it's they want to adhere to that campaign message too, right? This week we're talking about X, next week we will talk about Y. It's about kind of controlling that narrative too. Our program is a lot about peacemaking and using peaceful solutions. So let's talk about some ways to increase that peaceful use of civility in political discourse. So some of your research really has involved civic media tools and their capacity to foster particular civic and participatory skills. What do they foster? Yeah, I think that's, um, there's a variety of them. Um, a lot of them, and we might even say too many of them, are, are about, especially on the campaign side, I will say, um, uh, are, are about kind of fostering pretty narrow engagement, right? Like make more phone calls for the candidate you want, um, donate more money, get others to donate more money, um, that those are pretty um, circumscribed um, types of, of actions. And that's in fact what we see throughout most of the campaign environment. Um, in like the municipal governance um, environment where I've also done some research, um, there's certainly more room, right? Um, there's uh, and municipal governance and even kind of advocacy over the long term um, without having that kind of immediate threat of and like total sum, uh, like zero sum winning of or losing of election day, uh, you can do more kind of uh, in, in a city environment. And so there's a lot of kind of attempts to get people to attend meetings, attend them virtually, give their feedback, um, um, give it in a variety of ways that might be not just about like the traditional rules of deliberation that we think of, like rational public speaking that you go up to a mic and you say your piece and, and it gets recorded in some way, but that maybe what would it mean that if you give people the opportunity to play a game to do it, right? How does that change things? Um, and it certainly might not um, adhere to traditional norms of deliberation, um, that often also kind of undergird our assumptions about when civility and incivility work. Um, but it might be more interesting and in that that kind of element of, of fun and play might lead to new perspectives that we didn't hear, right? Um, and so I think that there's kind of more of this opportunity to get to some of those newer versions of like what it means to speak in public and how, what it means to, to give good feedback um, or good kind of public opinion um, throughout some of those examples. Jesse, your website says one of your goals in your research is to impact tech policy and politics. What kind of impact do you want to have on policy and does it impact civility? Honestly, civility is probably not one of my foremost concerns in that area. <laughs> um, I realize that might sound surprising, um, especially considering like the topic of the show. Um, but one of the reasons for that, there's actually been a lot of kind of research lately that shows that incivility, even though we might think it uh, is a problem and that it does kind of turn people, some people off to talking about politics in these certain areas um, or these certain platforms, it actually 
doesn't necessarily diminish the substance of the debate. And so people are still having kind of back and forth arguments and discussions in the face of this conversation, right? So I think it's also kind of an interesting question to leave Hmm. open about like how are our perceptions and norms and of types of political speech that we want to engage in, maybe shifting too, even like if we are seeing this, you know, quote unquote, uncivil type of speech um, within these places, but still having productive conversations, even if they also look uncivil. One suggested solution is to have people get away from this confirmation bias because people usually narrow cast, like whatever they mm-hmm. believe, they know where to go to get that confirmed. But mm-hmm. some people say, well, um, people don't value facts or they value feelings, or maybe they don't want to spend the time because it takes lots of time to look up different resources. Do you have any solutions? Well, so there are two parts of, of that question. One is, how do we get people to not select into and select out of media they agree with or disagree with, right? Yeah. Um, and, th- and that's been a problem that we faced in newspaper reading offline and online. Fascinatingly, research has kind of by and large shown that we are not any worse off in a digital realm. Kind of this idea that we are all in our filter bubbles when we go online and when we go in social media, that that has been widely disproven both across how we search for news, like in a search environment and which news news websites we go to, but also even within social media platforms, which is kind of contrary to people's assumptions about what those social media ecosystems look like. And so that is something of uplift, right? It's perhaps not uplifting that we've always selected into news we agree with, um, but that actually we are more exposed to differing points of view in our digital news consumption, I think is a little bit of a silver lining there. Yeah. So you're saying it doesn't really diminish the substance. It's more about the process. Yeah. And there's actually been some interesting research to to kind of show that um, in the past couple of years even. And so this is like an emerging place in the field and it's always been assumed that it was always terrible, Um, (laughs) but, but kind of more and more research is showing that might not if we think about what our outcomes, what we want our outcomes to be, um, that the outcomes of having these kind of back and forth conversations um, in which people are actually taking into account others' arguments and and arguing based off of those, right, and going back and forth on them, um, that, that that is happening there. Um, so that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, it's so interesting, this whole idea of communication as a form of violence. In fact, one of the people I really respect in my field, Marshall Rosenberg, wrote a book called Nonviolent Communication. And I think some people are concerned about this communication that leads to polarization. And maybe it leads to what I would call like a lack of humanness, like we're not talking to each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if our main concern is polarization, um, I am quite frankly less concerned with Twitter, um, where only like 15, 17% of the American public goes and the majority of people don't look up political news there, right? Um, I, I'm much less concerned about 
polarization in Twitter than polarization in cable news, right? <laughs> um, so, so if we think about kind of the threats of these places, um, Twitter seems new and different. Um, and if we follow, if we are a certain type of actor that is political on Twitter and follows political news intensely, we are the weird outliers, right? Um, the majority of people in that platform are not acting like that. Um, and so like, if, if we think about what our big concerns are first, rather than the platform first, if it's polarization, cable news has been documented to be a, a, a pretty substantive uh, vehicle and cause of polarization. Um, if our concern to like, to voice a concern that I do have about that that's tied to civility um, in places like Twitter, if our concern is harassment and kind of um, coordinated efforts um, to, to harass and be kind of excessively cruel to individuals, then Twitter is a really problematic place. Like there's been a lot of research that shows that um, women journalists are subjected to harassment um, at, at significantly outsized numbers. Um, Right. And so there are threats there. I think they're just different than the kind of the general conversations of around politics there. Jesse, let me read you some headlines I've seen recently. Facebook ban on political ads crush the left. Florida could be knockout punch for Sanders 2020. Trump Biden fight <laughs> over dominance on social media platforms. Well, those are very peaceful. I wonder if media is trying to create like fights. Yeah, I actually, so within the campaign world um, or like the, the kind of the news coverage of campaigning, um, those kinds of uh, kind of framing or metaphors, um, that kind of rhetoric is super common and has been for a very long time. Um, again, across platforms um, and and across a variety of news sources. Um, and that is one of the main ways that campaigns especially get framed um, as, as a fight in particular. Um, uh, I've had a kind of uh, low level interest in, in how even like the digital campaigning environment has been kind of uh, uh, covered in a very similar lens, right? Um, I, I study things like how campaigns use data um, to talk to us um, or to get us to try and engage with them. And this is like, turns into language of like psychological warfare very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's very true. And it's been true for quite a while now, um, prior to campaigns being particularly digital. Um, I don't know what to do about it, <laughs> but that kind of militarized uh, language of, of the political world and as the kind of centerpiece event of political worlds being campaigns for us um, ha has been very prominent for quite a while. How much do you think like a public outcry would make a difference? <laughs> that's a that's a good and slightly depressing question. <laughs> I mean, I think there has to be public will in order to do kind of any things with regards to platforms. Um, but their lobbying presence has been so significant that uh, that it's 
pretty clear that that's not enough at least. Um, so I've worked on a project with um, some colleagues of mine, uh, Daniel Kreese at uh, UNC, Letitia Bodie at Georgetown, um, and Adam Scheingate at Johns Hopkins. And um, we talked to a variety of political consultants across the political, across the kind of political spectrum. Um, and they all wanted certain um, types of either legislation or rules kind of placed on platforms that would standardize their behavior. Um, the enforcement of rules um, would be standardized. And, and right, this is, these are people from across very different political ideologies um, agreeing in the need for, for some legislation, um, which to me makes it relatively low-hanging fruit. Um, like it should be very doable. The public also wants legislation, right? Um, and yet, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to have been enough yet. <laughs> um, uh, I think it does point to the fact that, that there's possibility there. Um, I'm somewhat optimistic about that. Um, but, but the fact that there is so much agreement and, and still a kind of um, failure to respond, I think, is, uh, is also telling in an unfortunate way. It sounds like we have faulty perceptions. Would you agree that we're making up stuff that's not really true? Like maybe we're making up all this polarization. Maybe it's not really there. I think uh, we we are more polarized. That one is there, like about kind of uh, in our ideological beliefs and issues. But no matter what era we are operating in, a lot of things seem worse or newer kind of when they are happening in a new place, right? Not least of all, because we see them in a different way, right? Social media makes information available to us, like just at a scale that was kind of unimaginable before, right? And so we do see this stuff, but that kind of threat or fear or assumption that that it is like radically different and, and obviously much worse than before, I think kind of needs to be at least like, if not outright criticized, um, at least kind of grappled with and like making sure that those assumptions are, are actually correct. Um, because so often we actually find out that like, okay, we've actually kind of always had this problem, right? And if we assume that it's a tech problem, then we're going to come up with the wrong solutions than if we assume that it's a human problem <laughs> that we've had for 40 years or something like that. Right. It's kind of like people complaining about like the printing press. Oh, that'll be the end of the yeah. world. <laughs> and so maybe in a hundred years or 50 years, when people are kind of used to technology, um, maybe it won't be so upsetting. I think that's probably reasonable, although there will inevitably be something else that will seem much more upsetting in that particular moment, too. <laughs> right? That's, oh, the, good. that's part of the that moral panic. Yeah, exactly. Jesse Baldwin-Filippi is an associate professor at Fordham University in the Communication and Media Studies Department. You can hear more from her and all of our guests at our website on the July 2020 episode page at peacetalksradio.com. Here are the complete interviews with all of them, again, at peacetalksradio.com. And that's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. Read transcripts, see photos, follow links to other resources, and click on a button to help support our nonprofit work, all at peacetalksradio.com. We get support from listeners just like you, and from businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center of Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Also support comes from the Ties Fund of the Albuquerque Community Foundation. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. 
For co-founder Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.